So today we're continuing on with our Micah series. We're continuing on with Micah. Kind of the big picture that we've seen so far with Micah is that Micah is a prophet who is longing for the repentance of his people, longing for the repentance of, of God's people, of the people of Judah in the midst of all their sin, in the midst of all their rebellion against him. So, so this morning, we, we enter into an interesting passage. It's in Micah 6. We enter into a courtroom scene. This is actually a courtroom scene that's taking place. It's metaphorical, but, but God is bringing charges against his people. So we'll get to see how this kind of unfolds this morning. Um, many people don't actually realize this about me, but I, I actually have some expertise in law. Uh, I have a background in law. You see, as a child, I used to watch Perry Mason with my mom. That's, that, that's my expertise. Um, I, I saw a few good men a couple of times, so, so maybe that adds to that as well. But uh, as I've been preparing for the sermon this week, the, the theme song from Perry Mason, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with, was going on in the back of my mind over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's fun because our culture kind of has a fascination with the law, with the courtroom, with the law, and all of that. Um, many in our culture, I mean, we look at our culture, we look at what's making into the news, we look at BBC, we look at CNN, we look at all of the, all of the various um, news releases that are coming out, and over and over again, we see new people being taken to court, whether they're actors or politicians or whatnot, we, we have a fascination with this, and yet, and yet kind of at the center of it, at the hub of it, we have this courtroom scene, which is really the most important courtroom scene in all of history that surpasses it surpasses all of the rest. It surpasses Dred Scott. It, just, it surpasses Brown versus Board of Education. It even, it even surpasses Roe v. Wade, right? Because this is going to be such a significant courtroom scene that we're going to look at today that wasn't just significant for ancient Israel, but it continues to be significant for us today. So as we look at this, we'll look at what God's hope is ultimately for his people. As the courtroom scene unfolds, we get to see where God's priorities really are. What is his hope for his people? So we'll break the passage down into two major points. We'll look at, we'll look at the failure of the people, and then we'll look at the fulfillment of hope. The failure of people and the fulfillment of hope. Let's begin by reading our passage. Again, this comes out of Micah chapter 6. If you have your Bibles open up, otherwise we'll have it up overhead. Micah chapter 6. Or I think, well, nope, sorry, I correct that. We won't have it up overhead, so you have to open your Bibles. Sorry about that. Micah chapter 6. Now, listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains, and enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should, should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my, for my transgression, the offspring of my body, for my own sin? Mankind, 
he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measures? Is the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will not eat you, uh, because of your sins. You will not eat or sorry, you will eat but not be satisfied. And there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save. What you do, not, what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You will tread grapes but not drink the wine. The statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residence an object of contempt." You will bear the scorn of my people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you use your word in our lives, Father, to draw us to yourself, Father, to show us your beauty and your glory. Father, I pray that you would just be with us during this time, Lord, that you would make our hearts and our minds attentive to your word, Lord, that you would be, that you would be, tenderizing it into our hearts and changing us, Father. You are good. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So at this point, historically, Micah has seen the fall of the northern kingdom, right? He's seen their demise at the hands of the Assyrians and the consequence, and the consequences of their sins, of their idolatry, of their breaking of relationship and covenant with God. Now, a covenant is something that Israel had entered into voluntarily with God, similar to a marriage covenant that we would, that we would witness today. It was, a mutual, it was a mutual contract. It was, an ob, it was something that you would enter into intentionally with expectations and certain obligations. God had graciously allowed the nation to enter into relationship with him, and with that, he had promised certain blessings that would come as they faithfully followed him. We see them in passages like Deuteronomy 28.1, where it says, Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. And then we see it in verse 11, of also of chapter 28. The Lord will make you prosper abundantly with offspring, the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce in the land, the, in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. So we see all of these blessings unfolding for, for those who would faithfully follow the Lord. However, if they violated the covenant, there were certain curses. There were certain woes that would come against them. So we see it in passages like Deuteronomy 28, 15. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And as chapter 28 of Deuteronomy continues to unfold, you just see a list of all the things that will happen to the nation if they aren't faithful. For example, verse 64 then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, 
And there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So, so, so we see here a picture of the people being dispossessed from the land, being driven to the ends of the earth, and even being given over to their idolatry so that they are, so they're practicing the worship of these uh, false nations' gods. And indeed, and indeed, this is what we see the nation doing. This is what we see the southern nation doing. They are continuing time and time again to disregard God and to commit idolatry. The, the nation, the nation of Israel had divided in its history. After the reign of Solomon, after the reign of Solomon, the, the north separated from the south, the northern kingdom more aggressively, more aggressively followed the sins of the, of the Canaanite people who had had the land prior to them. So, so they followed them doing child sacrifices, doing all kinds of horrendous things and committing idolatry. God judged them for a lack of covenant faithfulness. He judged them through the nation of Assyria. The nation of Assyria came in and took, and took them over and dispossessed them from the land, exiled them, right? So it was only in recent history that now the southern kingdom saw their northern brothers taken out of the land for their unfaithfulness. So this is still fresh in their minds. And even now, Assyria Assyria, the same ones who had conquered the northern kingdom, are bearing down upon the south. And so here Micah is pleading to his people, you have to repent. You have to repent of your sinfulness. In our passage then this morning, when we, went, when we enter into this metaphorical courtroom scene, Judah is on trial. Judah, the southern kingdom, is on trial for failure to keep the covenant and committing some of the same heinous acts that their northern kingdom, brothers and sisters, had done. We enter in the courtroom scene, and God is presiding. In verses one to two, God calls the people to attention and invites the witnesses to come forward, the mountains and the hills and the very foundations of the earth. Creation itself is gonna give testimony about how wicked God's people are. You see, in the ancient world, it was very common for people to go and worship gods up on the tops of mountains and on the tops of hills. It was almost in an effort to be closer to them. And Israel, in their idolatry, had done the same thing. They had gone and they had erected temples and places where they could go to, to, to worship other gods. And now these very hills are gonna give testimony about the wickedness that they've seen taking place. God prepares his people to hear the accusations, to hear the, per to hear the charges against them with two rhetorical questions. The first one, he asks, my people, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? The second question, how have I wearied you? What have I done? The hearing begins this way to emphasize the relational nature of the charges that are being brought against Israel. We often use the expression, it's nothing personal, right? And sometimes, indeed, it is nothing personal. But in this case, it's, it's very personal, the charges that are, being that are being brought. The things that Israel have done, it's been a direct affront to God. It's been, it's been a violation of their relationship that they enjoyed. God has been faithful. He has upheld his end of the covenant. And now God provides four examples, four occasions of the way that he has historically provided for the nation. He provides four examples. The first one, the first one is redemption. 
The first one is redemption. He reminds the people how he brought them out of Egypt. Though they, though they had gone into Egypt for hundreds of years and become slaves of the Egyptians and were persecuted and were oppressed, God did not leave them there. God delivered them out of the nation and out of servitude. The second, the second reminder, the second um, occasion of God's past provision was leadership. Right? When he brought them out of Egypt, he didn't just leave them as is. He actually raised up leaders in their midst, individuals like Moses, who are very well known, Aaron, their first high priest, Miriam, who would write songs for the nation. He rose, he, God raised up leaders for them to lead them well. Third, God provided protection for them. He provided protection. Um, during their wilderness wanderings in kind of a comedic scene, actually, in Numbers 22 to 24, King, King Balak comes to a prophet. He comes to Balaam, and he says, Balaam, I need you to curse the Israelites. I need you to take them out. Curse them for me. And so, so, so Balaam goes to curse the Israelites, but God only allows ba Balaam to bless the Israelites. So every time he goes to actually pronounce a curse over them, instead a blessing comes out. And then every time Balak, is, Balak responds, what are you doing? That's not what I wanted you to do. You did the opposite of what I wanted you to do. And then this happens repeatedly throughout through the account. So again, we see God's provision for his people. And then fourth, God provides a path for his people. He provides a path for his people. There at Shittim and Gilgal, in events that are very similar to the parting of the Red Sea, God actually parts the Jordan River so that the people are able to cross over into their land. God provides a path for them. Now, part of the point of listing these four events is to show that despite the failings of Israel, despite everything that they had done wrong, God has been faithful to them. God has been faithful in everything that's, been, that's transpired. We see this in verse five, uh, at the end of verse five, it says, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts, right? That's, the, that's why God has done those things. Because as Israel looked at all the ways God had provided for them, they should be able to respond in appreciation and thankfulness, acknowledging the Lord's righteous acts towards them, how he has cared for them. He led them into the promised land. He had been faithful, but that's not all. This point, these four points, they also bring the primary charge against Israel. This isn't just a reminder of what God's done. It's also the charge against Israel. Central to their covenant obligation as a nation was that they would remember how God had provided for him. That they would remember and that they would make him central in everything. We see it in passages, again, going back to Deuteronomy. Like Deuteronomy 8.2, where it says, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. So that he might, so he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. And then we see it in verses 18 to 19 of Deuteronomy 8. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow down and worship them, I testify against you today that you will perish. A fundamental element of them being the people of God was remembering remembering their God and remembering what he had done for them. Yes, Israel had sinned in so many significant ways, but this was the most grievous. It was their forgetfulness. 
Everything else is just kind of the fallout of that central sin, this central violation. They had forgotten their God, and thus they had shown their cards about how they really view God, right? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. That was the center of the law. That was the center. It all boiled down to that. But if they weren't remembering their God, then they certainly weren't loving him, right? Where you put your attention is a pretty good indicator of where your heart's actually at. The, the things that you remember, the things, the, the, the things that you meditate on, the things that you focus on, right? They give testimony to where your heart genuinely is. And as you looked at the nation of Israel, it was very evident that their heart was not on the Lord. In verses 6 to 7, they're allowed to give a defense. The the prosecution rests and allows the defense their their, their turn to speak. So the prophet Micah voices voices the, the contention of the people. The people ask this rhetorical question. What, what is it that we should bring? What should we do? Should the, people, uh, should the people come forward and bring a burnt offering? Now, a burnt offering would have been a fairly significant sacrifice in the ancient world. It was one of the more expensive offerings that could have been done. In fact, Israel actually ups the ante. It's like, okay, not even just a burnt offering. We're going to bring a, a year-old calf, so a young offering. So again, this, this is a good, very legitimate offering. This was a top-of-the-line sacrifice to God. Or, or even better, Israel goes on to offer a thousand rams with 10,000 streams of oil, right? They continue to escalate. But, but at the same time, as they escalate, you get the feeling that this isn't a genuine offering, right? This is, there's sarcasm behind this. There's exaggeration. There's hyperbole that's happening here. And then they, they go up the rung one more time. Or even more extreme, even more extreme, Offer the sacrifice of a child. Now, I I take it that, again, this is exaggeration and this isn't a genuine offering. Though later on, later on in their history, they will actually commit child sacrifice as well. They will go down that road as well. I'm not sure that that's what's genuinely being offered here. I think rather that this is probably an audacious reply from a people who believe that their minimal practice of sacrifice was enough to show God that they've maintained covenant, that they've held up their end of the bargain. They feel that they, 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 they're absolved of the guilt due to their continued practices of sacrifices. And yes, God does require, require sacrifices of them according to law. That's not all he wants, right? He didn't want a people who would just go through the motions of sacrifice. He wants their hearts and all of their affections, Right? That, that would be like me coming home on Valentine's Day. Sorry, guys, if that's a sensitive subject right now. I know it was last week, so some of you still look guilty about that. But it would be like me coming home on Valentine's Day, throwing down a bouquet of flowers in front of my wife and saying, I fulfilled my requirement. I'm done. I, I'm good. I, that, that, that was what was expected of me. Right? That, that's what Israel has done to God. Now, for, for, for all of you marriage counselors out there, would that be a good idea to come home and just throw down a bouquet of flowers in front of my wife and saying, I've done my requirement? No, of course not. Of course not. That would, that would leave me in a lot of trouble. Someday I will get out of that trouble. I tested that this week. It was bad. 
God wants more than that. He doesn't want just their duty. He wants their hearts. He wants their hearts. We see the verdict pronounced in verses 10 to 11. Micah prepares Jerusalem to hear the verdict as God brings more accusations against the people. The evidence is, the evidence is that their hearts have, far stray, have strayed far away from God. They're guilty of taking advantage of the weak and the marginalized. They're guilty of using things like short measures and wicked scales and deceptive weights, all tools that would be used to trick people in the amount of goods that they were purchasing Right? The, the people of Jerusalem, they were scamming people. Israel was guilty of taking advantage of others. And then we see the sentencing unfold in verses 13 through 16. For the, people, uh, for the people's sin of forgetting their God and for abusing others, according to verse 13, God was already beginning to punish them. Verses 14 to 15 describe the nation as insatiable. No matter how much they produce, no matter, no matter what, they, what they make, they're never able to be satisfied. They're like a bottomless hole, and their desires ultimately overtake them. Micah summarizes in verse 16, they have followed in the practices of Omri and Ahab, two of Israel's most wicked kings. They have followed in the same practices, and therefore Jerusalem will be an object of contempt and mockery among the rest of the nations. So the people are guilty. They have forgotten their God, and their attempts to go through the motions of religious practice have accomplished nothing. Their contempt for their God has been only made more evident by their disregard and abuse of the weak in their midst. They're guilty, and there would eventually be a reckoning. These, wor these words would have burned into their ears, especially considering, again, it was only in recent past that they saw the northern kingdom fall for similar things. Micah's prophecy doesn't end there, though. It doesn't end on a dour note. Rather, there is hope. There is hope. There's a fulfillment of hope. Micah's prophecy to Jerusalem was meant to bring about change in the people. This first begins to crystallize in Micah 6 to 8, where Micah presents God's hope for his people. Here, he lists three things that he expected from his people Israel. They weren't new things. Rather, they were the fundamentals. They were the fundamentals of what was described back in the covenant in Deuteronomy. Right? If everything, if everything in the law had to be boiled down to just a few things, it would have been boiled down to these principles. First, God's people, God's people were expected to act justly. The Hebrew here actually literally just says, do justice. The people were to do justice. The word justice has already been used five other times throughout the book of Micah. So this is an area of significant concern for him. Justice can include notions such as, um, such as punishment and such, but, but that doesn't exhaust. That doesn't exhaust what justice means. It also includes the concept of caring for the most vulnerable in your society, for the weakest in the society. So we already saw that the leaders, the leaders had been abusing the poor, right? But this is more than simply don't abuse the poor. He's not telling his people, stop abusing them. Yes, that, that's a given, but he wants more than that. This means that God's people have a responsibility not just to not abuse, but to actually care for those with needs, to go out of our way, to humbly sacrifice for, to put ourselves out for, to be, to be joyfully inconvenienced by an innate responsibility for the flourishing and the thriving of all in our society. 
That's doing justice. That's what God expects of his people. Second, they're called to love faithfulness. The word faithfulness is translated kindness in some of your translations. Um, It refers to a covenantal, faithful, kind of long-suffering love. This is not just some, this, is, this isn't just talking about random acts of kindness or occasional, occasional things. This is talking about continuous, even when it's hard, sort of loving. So, so, so take cheer, because we all have people like that in our lives, right? Who, who we have to long suffer with, who aren't always easy. And, and for many of us in here, we might actually be that person that uh, everyone else has to be, uh, be long suffering with. So, so take cheer in that. This is the sort of love that God expects from his people. A long-suffering, willing to, willing to grit through it, willing to work through the hard times because God has called us to something so much greater. Now, these first two points are more, of a ho- more horizontal in nature. These are more horizontal in nature. They're looking to others in our community. But there's a third that's more vertical in nature that looks at our relationship more specifically with God. Micah's third point here is that God's people are to walk humbly with him. This points to an intimate relationship with God. These these three points are intimately linked together because the Israelites would have said that they followed the third point, right? They would have said it. They would have said, but God, we've done sacrifices. We've done what you've required. We walked humbly with you, didn't we? The Israelites would have said that their sacrifice was sufficient, But the response is, if you haven't practiced the first two, if you haven't done justice, and if you haven't loved faithfulness, then you can't really claim that you've walked humbly with God. The horizontal axis and the vertical axis are linked too closely. You can't practice the one without the other. God wants his people to be marked by a genuine piety, which is vertical, and a genuine charity, which is horizontal. Both things. Um, there's, a, there's an ancient document written in the second century um, by, by an individual named Lucian. He was, he was a, a Greek. He was a non-Christian. He was a, um, a satirist. And he mocked Christians because, because they were so well-known in their day for charity. He made fun of them and mocked them. He describes them as being gullible and easily deceived because they were constantly giving all of their things away. I wonder today if we've become so clever and so critically minded that it's become an excuse to rarely help others in need. I long for the day when God's people can be mocked for being too charitable and too compassionate and too quick to give and too prone to sacrificial charity. Wouldn't that be a great day when our culture looks upon us and mocks us for those things? The picture of faithfulness This picture of faithfulness that God provides is what God is calling his people to, to walk rightly with him, to care for the weak and the needy. It's not good enough to remain as they have been. They need to be recommitted to God and to living out his covenant. And this is indeed what God wants, not just for them, but God also wants for us. He desires us to be a people who are radically sold out for him, not half-hearted, going through the motions of religiosity, not offering our subpar sacrifices and semi-regular Sunday attendance with spindly morality. That's not what God wants. 
He wants a robust people who are willing to sacrifice and be mocked for their generosity and charity. People who aren't afraid to live radically because this world is passing and because we have something so much greater that is waiting for us. He wants a people who have discovered the treasure, buried it deep in the field, gone out and sold all that they had because they have so much, something so much greater for them waiting there in the field. That is what he wants from his people. But what is Israel to do? What are they to do? They have forsaken these things. They were indeed guilty. Is this really then hope for them? Is this really then hope for them, or is it just condemnation? My people, you haven't lived up to what I've called you to. Is this condemnation? In 6.11, God states, I can't excuse wicked scales. Can God just ignore the sins of the people? Remember, this is a courtroom setting. What kind of a judge would God be if he chose to simply ignore Ignore the wrongs that have been perpetrated. Ignore the wrongs that have been done. He would be an unjust judge. It would be contrary to his very nature, to who he is. And verse 16 ends with, you will bear the scorn of my people. You will bear the scorn of my people. Here the judge has done something that's unexpected. The judge has done something that's unexpected. He has brought in his own son. Right? He's brought in his own son. He's brought in one of the Jews, Jesus Christ, who stands up and says, Father, judge, I have done these three things. I have done justice. I have walked humbly. I have done these three things before you. Not, not only have I done them, but I've also taught them, right? When asked to summarize the law, well, how did Jesus do it? Loving God and loving others. That's ultimately what we see presented in this passage. Not only have I done it, but I have taught it faithfully. Writing about this courtroom scene, um, Paul, the apostle, he wrote this in Romans 3, 26. God presented him, God presented Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he, so that the judge, so that God would be, would be both righteous, would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. This Jesus would bear the scorn of God's people so that God would be both just and justifier. Just as we see in Isaiah 53 verses four to six, Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. In this way, in this way, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Micah chapter six. He took the scorn of the people, right? He's taken our scorn. God's people might have, he's, he, took, he took the scorn so that we might have life and might have it abundantly. He paved the way through the sin of God's people back into covenant with the Father by being the ultimate sacrifice by being condemned. 
Christ took our guilt, and by him, by him, by faith in what he has done, we get his life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much this morning, God, for all the ways that you provide, for all, for all the ways you've shown your might, Lord. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for what he was willing to do for us. Father, that he was willing to take the guilt and the shame, Father, that rightly belonged to us. Father, I thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are committed, committed to what you have called us to, to committed to what he demonstrated in his own life and his own teachings. Father, we pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen.